Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans 10, 5 through 10 will be our sermon passage this morning. And whenever I teach, uh, whether in the church or in the classroom, whenever I teach about the doctrine of Scripture, what we believe about the Bible, one of the things that I uh, emphasize is that the Bible is fundamentally clear. And yet that does not mean that there are no passages in it that are difficult to understand, right? The Bible says that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. A a light, a lamp makes things clear that otherwise would not be clear. It helps us to see things uh, that otherwise would be dark. So that, that wouldn't be true of a book that was obscure or difficult or mysterious or written in some kind of code or something. Uh, The Bible is clear. The Bible also says that uh, it makes wise the simple. You can't make wise the simple with a book that the simple can't even begin to understand, right? In order to be made wise, it has to be easy enough that you can begin to understand it. But the Bible also says uh, that there are some hard parts to the Bible. In 2 Peter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul says, or excuse me, the Apostle Peter says that Paul has written some things that are difficult and hard to understand, which the unstable twist to their own destruction. And we could turn that around and say, Peter, you've written some things that are hard to understand too. Paul's not the only one. So uh, the basic message of the Bible, right, about um, the fact that there's a God who created us, who's holy, that we have sinned against that God by breaking His laws, that He loved us anyway and sent His Son into the world to die for sinners, to rise again so that everybody who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus can have uh, fellowship with God, be reconciled to God, and so on. Uh, That's pretty easy to understand. But there are some parts of the Bible that are not easy to understand. And it seems like most books of the Bible have at least one passage that makes preachers and Sunday school teachers nervous. Most books of the Bible have at least one passage that when you get ready, if you know you're going to teach through the whole book, when you get ready to start, you think, ooh, what am I going to say about that one? Right? For example, um, it's not the same for every preacher and every teacher, but... I would imagine that there are a lot of pastors who have shied away from going through the whole book of Romans because of Romans chapter 9. It's a tough passage. What am I going to say about it? How are people going to respond to it? It's a tough chapter. Uh, I'm sure there are some who have avoided preaching uh, all the way through the book of Hebrews because they don't know what they're going to say about that Melchizedek guy in chapter 7. You know, what's some mysterious things said about him. Or, uh, what about the book of Daniel? I mean, Daniel 7, and Daniel 9, and Daniel 11. There's some very important but challenging passages. Or, the book of Revelation. I mean, most of Revelation, right, is challenging. The book of Hosea. Uh, we could go on and on. There, just about any book of the Bible has something in there that's easy, hard, uh, that's either hard to explain... Or uh, you're not quite sure how people are going to respond to it because it's a, it's a difficult, hard thing to hear. For me, the passage that I have been nervous about pretty much from the beginning is this passage in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 to 10. Not because of how you're going to respond to it. I'm not worried about that. But because I didn't know how I was going to explain it because it's a passage that has puzzled me 
for many, many years. Last week in our, our text, there were some things that Paul was doing with the Old Testament that were uh, difficult to explain, but that caught me by surprise. This one I've known was coming for a long time. So um, I, uh, as usual, you know, had help with this. Like I said last week, I'm always standing on people's shoulders. Um, but this week I had um, particular help from a particular friend um, who I'll mention later when we get to the, to the tough part, who's going to come in and, uh, and uh, rescue me a little bit and explain some things that I couldn't have explained as well as he has on my own. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to dig through um, these early verses. Verse 5, not too terribly difficult. Verses 6 through 8, um, it's not that it's hard to explain the basics of what they mean, but why they mean what they mean, where they're coming from, why Paul is saying what he's saying. That's the tricky part for me. We'll dig into that with the help of my friend. And then verses 9 and 10 are some of the most famous verses from the whole book of Romans. All of us know them. Probably many of you know them by heart. And that'll give us a, sort of a, a, a soft place to land, some things that we can exult in together uh, that we all love and treasure and uh, rejoice in. So let me read for us verses 5 through 10, and then we'll dig in. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, verse 5, Moses quotes from, you may not have quotations in your verse there, I don't, but he's quoting from Leviticus 18.5. And Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And what Moses is doing here is he's talking about the way the old covenant works. Uh, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave them the Ten Commandments, what we think of as the law, right? The Ten Commandments and then the rest of the laws that were given throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus and so on. That old covenant, how does that covenant work? Well, that's the covenant that the Jews who have rejected the Messiah, that they're still trying to operate under. Remember Paul said that this um, surprising thing has happened to us, that if we paid attention to the Old Testament, ought not to be as surprising as it is, but it still surprises most of us that many of the Jews rejected the Messiah when he came, rejected Jesus, even though they've been waiting for him for centuries, and yet many of the Gentiles, who hadn't paid any attention to the Old Testament scriptures, hadn't had any anticipation about a Messiah, a Savior, hadn't, hadn't been trying to be right with the God of Israel, all of a sudden they've heard the gospel about the Messiah and they've believed and been saved. And so Paul said what's happened is that the Jews, many of the Jews, those who have, uh, who have not believed, 
verse 31 of chapter 9, he says, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So they were trying to keep the law as a way to make themselves righteous, rather than realizing that the law was meant to show them that they are not righteous, and that they needed to believe in the Messiah who was to come, so that they could be righteous in Him. That's what the law was supposed to point them to, but they insisted on continuing to treat the law like a ladder, where they could climb their way up to uh, righteousness before God. So when he says in verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, he's saying what Moses is writing about here in Leviticus 18.5, this is the way that the Jews who have rejected the Messiah are thinking about the law and thinking about righteousness. They're they're treating it as though um, they can do it, and they're going to do it, and that's how they're going to have the life that God promises. That's how they're going to have the gift of life is they're going to do what the law says. Because after all, Leviticus 18.5 says the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And if you do them, you live. Seems to be what it says. Paul quotes uh, that same verse, Leviticus 18.5 in Galatians 3 as well, where he makes really clear that it's not possible to be made righteous that way. In Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10, he says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So why is everybody who relies on the law cursed? Well, because in order to not be cursed, you have to do everything in the law. And who can do everything in the law? Nobody. So then he says, Now it is evident that, this is still Galatians, that it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk. That's Old Testament too. The righteous shall live by faith. And he says, But the law is not of faith. Rather, and he quotes Leviticus 18.5, The one who does them shall live by them. So the law... Though the law encouraged faith, its emphasis was obedience. Right? You have to do this. In order to get the blessings, you have to do these things. And Paul says, but the way to be righteous is what Habakkuk says. You have to be righteous by faith, because nobody can be righteous by works, because nobody can do all the things that the law requires. But many of the Jews, again, they're still living like they can do enough of the law in order to be righteous by God that way. Jesus dealt with this as well. Remember when, um, uh, this is in Luke chapter 10, a man came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered him, or Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Time out. Jesus, is Jesus promoting a works-based salvation? Is, he, is Jesus promoting a works righteousness? No, why not? 
It's true that if you do that, you will live. But who can do that? Who can love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself on your own? Nobody can do that. And the man he was speaking to, I think, knew that, or at least suspected that, because his next question was, who is my neighbor? I might be able to love God pretty well and love some people as my neighbor, but let's be clear about who my neighbor is. Jesus proceeded to answer that question by telling what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. The answer to the question, who is my neighbor, according to the parable of the Good Samaritan, is anybody who's in need. So now, how, how are we doing at loving our neighbor as ourself? Not good enough to count on that as the way I'm going to be right with God, that's for sure. But that's the way the Jews who rejected the Messiah, that's the way they're treating the law. They're, they're thinking... We can live according to the law. We can do enough of the law that we will live. Now, Paul has been clear uh, earlier in the book of Romans, and we don't want to forget this, that the problem is not with what the law requires. Is it unfair of God to require us to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength? No. Is it, is it asking too much to ask us to love our neighbors as ourselves? No, there's nothing wrong with what the law required or with what it promised. The problem is with our sinfulness, not with the law itself. It's not that there's something wrong with the law. There's something wrong with us that keeps us from being able to keep the law perfectly. Which is why there needed to be another way for us to be made right with God if anyone was going to be saved. And God knew that. And he didn't figure it out a thousand years later when he decided, when he, and, you know, decided to send Jesus. Like, like that was not the plan. But then after so long of the Jews rejecting the prophets and rebelling against God and committing idolatry, God said, well, okay, I guess I'm going to have to send my son down there because this isn't working. No, no, that had always been the plan. God always knew they were not going to be able to keep the law. And he had always planned from eternity past to send his son at just the right time to save his people from their sins. And one of the reasons we know that is because of what God says in the law itself about what it is going to take for his people to be able to live according to the law. So back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and you, you don't have to turn there, you're welcome to if you want, but in Deuteronomy 30 where we read from earlier, God has just spelled out through Moses once again um, what the blessings are if Israel keeps the law and what the curses are if they fail to keep the law. And then in chapter 30... He says this, he says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So I know that you're not going to keep the law and you're going to experience these curses. And when that happens, uh, when all this comes upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. That's one of the curses. If you don't obey me, if you worship other gods, I'm going to send you out of the land that I promised to you. 
Your enemies are going to defeat you, and you're going to be scattered among the nations. That's one of the curses. And so he's saying, that's going to happen. It's not, it's not if, not if that happens, when that happens, and you're scattered among the nations because you've broken covenant with me, and you remember what I told you about these blessings and these curses, and then you return and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So, you're going to break the covenant. I'm going to send you into exile. And then you're going to return to me. And when you return to me, then I'll bring you back to the land and I'll bless you once again. Now, how is all of this going to work? I mean, how are they going to return? Is there ever going to be a time when there's not these cycles of disobedience and repentance? Like, if you read the book of Judges, at the beginning of the book of Judges, what happens? God blesses them. They turn away from the Lord. God sends judgment on them. They cry out for help. God sends a Savior. Everything's good for a little while. Then they turn away from the Lord again. Then God sends somebody else to judge them. Then they cry out for help. Then God sends a Savior and delivers them. Everything's good for a while. And it's just cycle after cycle after. Is that cycle of disobedience and repentance ever going to be broken? And if so, how? Well, here's what uh, God says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is the the key verse. He says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God is going to do heart surgery on His people so that they are fundamentally changed from within and enabled to keep the law in a way they've never done before. Now, we find that promise all over the Bible. It's a different language, but this is the same thing that Jesus is talking about when he says, Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus said, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't understand these things? Why should Nicodemus have understood these things? Because that's what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 30. Something's going to have to happen to your heart. And if something fundamentally changes your heart, guess what? You're a new person. Here's how um, Ezekiel says it. In Ezekiel 36, he says, this is God speaking through the prophet, he says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's the same thing Deuteronomy 6 is saying. Except for instead of using the language of circumcision of the heart, Ezekiel says a new heart. But both of these, the goal is so that you will obey the law. It's the same thing that Jeremiah is talking about as well in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. All those 
those things, writing the law on the heart, receiving a new heart, the circumcision of the heart, the new birth, all of those things are different ways about, of talking about the exact same thing. It is God changing His people from the inside out, making a fundamental change in who we are. It's the same thing Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If you get a new heart, you're a new person. You get a new spirit put within you, you're a new person. Your identity has changed. right? So that means what Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy 30 Though he doesn't use the same phrase as Jeremiah, it's the same truth. He's talking about the new covenant. So even in the midst of this um, re-preaching of the old covenant, re-preaching of the law, Moses is saying to Israel, look, I know you're not going to keep this covenant. And so there's going to be a day coming in the future where he is going to put into place a new covenant. And the new covenant is going to do what the old covenant didn't do, couldn't do, because the old, the new covenant is going to be God changing you from the inside out. Whereas the old covenant was God telling you on the outside, this is what you're supposed to do. And you couldn't do it. So if Deuteronomy 30 is about the new covenant, and Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30 in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, when he says, Uh, When he quotes these passages, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That's what Paul or that's what uh, Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 30 uh, verses 11, 12, 13 and, and 14. So that means that Paul understands Deuteronomy 30 as a new covenant passage. And who puts the new covenant into effect? Jesus does, right? When he sits with his disciples at that Passover meal that we call the Last Supper on the night before his crucifixion, he takes the cup and says what? This is the new covenant in my blood. By my death, your hearts are going to be circumcised. By my death, God is going to remove your heart of stone and put within you a heart of flesh. He's going to put a new spirit in you. I am putting that into effect. Your sins are going to be forgiven. And you are going to know the Lord. All these are parts of the new covenant. Because of my blood shed on the cross. So Jesus puts into effect the new covenant. And if Deuteronomy 30 is about the new covenant. And Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30. Making it about Christ. Or showing us that it's about Christ. Here in Romans. That's because he understands that it's about the new covenant. And not only that, but verse 4 of chapter 10 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, again, what was the law doing in the first place? The law was always pointing us to Jesus. The law was always showing us our need for Jesus. It was... um, prefiguring Jesus, it was pointing us to Jesus, it was promising the coming of Jesus, it was always directing us toward Jesus, and now Jesus is here, but some people are stuck on the law instead of on Jesus. And Paul's saying, that doesn't make any sense. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. Now, what my friend did was help me see how those things are connected to what's doing, what Paul is doing here. <clears throat> And how that all comes, <clears throat> comes together. My friend 
Uh, he wrote his doctoral thesis on this passage from Romans 10. Over 200 pages on this passage right here. So, needless to say, he knows a lot more about this passage than I do, or than just about anybody does, right? Because that he made that his specialty. <clears throat> and um, some of these things I've been pointing out already, he helped me kind of put together, and, and I'm going to uh, quote for you how he helped me see. Now, I'm going to take out some of the academic language, make it where it's more like I would say it, uh, right? But, he, but here's how he says it. I mean, this, these are more or less his, his words. He says, my argument is that the key to understanding what Paul is doing in Romans 10, 6 through 8, is found in these two things. Number one, Paul's statement in Romans 10, 4, that Christ is the end of the law and the new covenant, uh, that's number one, and, and second, the new covenant context of Deuteronomy 30. And he brings those two things together like this. He says, Christ not only brings about the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14, but for Paul, Christ's mission, his incarnation and resurrection, which are a summary for his birth, life, death, and resurrection, that is both the message and the content of the righteousness of faith, as well as the grounds, the beginning, and the guarantee of the new covenant reality prefigured in Deuteronomy 30. Christ both fulfills the law perfectly and bears the curses due those who fail to do so, and he gives the Spirit who inscribes the law on the heart. All right, so let's look at verses 6 through 8. Let me show you what he's saying. In verse 6 he says, The righteousness based on faith, so the, the righteousness where we say, I'm righteous by faith in Jesus, not by what I do, says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? Now, Deuteronomy 30, Moses said, don't say, who's going to go up into heaven and bring the law down for us? It's already here. Okay, well, how does Paul make that about Jesus? Because Paul says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. He's saying, well, the law was fulfilled in Jesus, and that passage was about the new covenant, which is put into place by Jesus. And so Paul can say, that verse is not ultimately about who's going to go get the law for us, but who's going to go get the Messiah for us. And you don't need to say that because Jesus has already come down in his incarnation. And you couldn't bring him down anyway. He came down of his own volition, of his own free will. So he's already come down. And then Deuteronomy 30 also says, who's going to, in Deuteronomy 30, it's who's going to go across the sea to get the law. As though it's far away. We don't have it. We need somebody to bring it to us. Well, Paul tweaks that a little bit and says, who will descend into the abyss? That is, who will go down? He says, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, Jesus has already been raised from the dead, which is his vindication as Messiah and Savior, proves that everything he said about himself is true. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He is the one who uh, puts into effect the new covenant by his blood. None of us can do that. None of us could bring him up from the dead. He's already been raised from the dead. And so, when the, when the law says Deuteronomy 30, the word is near you in your heart, in your mouth and in your heart, like Paul quotes in verse 8, Paul says what that's ultimately talking about is the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, the gospel. So all of that, and, and you know, if we follow all that logic, right, about the new covenant and about uh, the law pointing to Jesus, 
then when we read that and we read Deuteronomy 30, we don't think, is Paul just like putting Jesus on top of the law just because he wants to? No, Jesus was what that law, what those words were always pointing to. That's what it was always about. It was always about the gospel. So, the short answer of what Paul, you know, to the question, what is Paul saying in verses 6 through 8, is that Christ in his death and resurrection fulfills the law and puts the new covenant into effect precisely because Deuteronomy 30 was always about him and has now been fulfilled in him. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what Paul is saying here, too. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law because he's the fulfillment of the new covenant, which the law itself promised all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, that leads to verses 9 and 10, which are familiar, precious, wonderful verses where Paul says, because... This this word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, this message of the gospel, it's already here. You've heard it. You've got it. You don't have to go chase it down. You don't have to put it into effect. You don't have to go try to get Jesus to come down. You don't have to try to raise Jesus up. He's already come, lived, died, been raised from the dead. The gospel has already been proclaimed to you, which means all that you need for your salvation has already been accomplished and you already have access to it. All you have to do is believe it and confess it. So what are we supposed to believe and confess? Verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, believing that he was raised from the dead implies that you also believe he was dead, right? That he was crucified. So those central um, tenets of our faith, right? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We are called to believe that. We heard that message, but we must believe it and receive it. And then if we believe that God has been raised from from the dead, then we know that He's Lord, that He's King of kings, right? He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. So we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Why? Verse 10, with the heart one believes and is justified. That means counted righteous by faith. That's the same thing Paul's talking about in verse 6, the righteousness based on faith. That's justification, Right? You, with the heart, one believes and is justified. Your sins are forgiven. You're counted righteous before God. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Is it really important to believe and confess? I mean, we know it's important to believe. Do we need to confess it as well? Yeah, we do. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, which is what confessing is, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So it's important not only to believe these things, but to acknowledge that we believe these things, to confess these things. And Paul says, if you believe and you confess, you're saved. Apart from keeping the law, apart from being a Jew, apart from experiencing circumcision, apart from all of that. 
All you have to do is receive this word about Christ that has been given to us in fulfillment of the scriptures. You receive it, you believe it, you confess that you believe it, and you are saved. That is the glorious simplicity of the gospel and the grace of God. So you don't have to be able to put together Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Romans to get that part. Right? Thank goodness. Right? God's plan for saving His people, though, has always been to save, to send Jesus. Right? That much is clear. The law was never a means of salvation. It was always the standard for those God had already made His own. Just like in the New Testament, we have places where we're told, now that you're saved, here's what you're supposed to do. That's how the law was meant to function in the Old Testament as well. But it was also a pointer to our need for something more. Something better than animal sacrifices. Something nearer than God dwelling in the temple and the tabernacle. To show us our need for a covenant that would not only tell us what to do, but would change us from within so that we could do it. And God sent His Son into the world to establish that covenant, the new covenant, to purchase our pardon with His blood, to bring us nearer to God's presence than even the high priest by sending the Spirit of God Himself to dwell within us, to enable us and empower us to fulfill the law as nobody under the old covenant was able to by the power of the Spirit that we might live lives of love toward God and our neighbor in the name of Jesus. We give thanks to Him for doing that for us.